welcome to Let It Roll, the insanely ambitious musical history podcast hosted by Nate Wilcox. We've covered the early history of rock and roll, country music in the 20th century, the rise of hip-hop, disco, electronic dance music, and heavy metal. Stay tuned for our histories of Broadway, opera, punk rock, jazz, blues, ragtime, Latin music, and gospel. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter, at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcast.com. Today, Nate and Ed Legg continue their discussion of Michelangelo Matos's Can't Slow Down, how 1984 became pop's blockbuster year, with a look at Talking Heads' breakthrough concert film, Stop Making Sense, as well as Flashdance, Footloose, Spinal Tap, Repo Man, and other films of the early 1980s with a musical connection. Email us at letitrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. Or should I say, it's time to let it 80s roll or something like that. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, joined once again by Ed Legg as we continue our discussion of Can't Slow Down, How Pop, be- How 1984 Became Pop's Blockbuster Year by Michelangelo Matos. Ed, today we're going to San Francisco, the Castro Theater, April 24th, 1984, did you see where this was going from the the, the chapter heading? Because I was totally swerved by that. Me too. I had I did not know that was that was I meet I thought something completely different seeing the Castro Theater. Me too. I was thinking after the discussion of high energy and the AIDS crisis and everything else that was going on in 1984 that this chapter we would dive into it really deep, but instead we're talking about the world premiere of the Talking Heads and Jonathan Demme's Stop Making Sense, which many people, including Robert Criscow, have called the greatest concert film ever made. So, and, and then he uses the whole chapter to discuss the music movies of the year, Flashdance, Footloose. Flashdance was actually 1983, but still a big factor in 1984's pop scene. Footloose, of course, and Repo Man and Spinal Tap. So fits it all in, but spends most of his time on Stop Making Sense. Did you see Stop Making Sense back in the day? I did not see it until not the end of 1985. And mainly that was a, a casual a function of wh- where I lived. I mean, Columbus, Georgia did not have any, I guarantee that didn't show that movie. And they certainly didn't have any art houses, which is where I ended up seeing it at the end of 85. Yeah. How about I- you? I definitely did not catch it in Borger, Texas in 1984, but I did <laughs> catch it. I believe on VHS, I want to say early 1985, my sophomore year. But it might have been on pay cable, but around that same time. So, yeah, I saw it a year later as well. But I consider that basically 1984. It's not like you waited until 1997 or something to see it. So, Yes, and it was still on. I mean, it was I remember the ad. I remember that font, that kind of crazy font that the, the movie ad had. So it was clearly on for a long time yeah yeah it had a good run it was very successful and the uh, soundtrack album was even more successful although it never broke into the top 40 it spent uh something like 200 days 
plus in the or in the top 100. So and it became the Talking Heads' biggest selling album. And so uh, a good chunk of the chapter he spends kind of telling the history of the Talking Heads and the whole CBGB scene, which is commonly credited with having kicked off the punk slash new wave revolution of the 70s, even before London. Uh, you know, groups like the Patti Smith Group. The Ramones, Television, Richard Hell and the Voidoids, the Dead Boys, and of course the Talking Heads themselves all came out of the CBGB scene in Lower Manhattan, in the Bowery in Manhattan uh, in the late 70s. And of course, Seymour Stein of Sire Records is mentioned because he basically signed all of those groups. He signed the Ramones, the Talking Heads. Um, he missed out on Blondie. Blondie went to Chrysalis, which um, was a, ended up being a big get, uh, but Stein got the Dead Boys and Richard Hell. I can't remember if he had television or not. I want to say he did not, but um, he also had Australia's The Saints and, you know, made a real run at pushing this stuff. And Sire, the thing about Sire to keep in mind is in 77, it was, it had major label distribution, but it was still basically an indie label. And so it didn't have a huge amount of push or stroke uh, with the ra radio uh, stations. And so it essentially couldn't get the Ramones played on the radio. And out of this crop of, of groups that came up, Patti Smith, I think, had a top 10, top 15 hit, that Because of the Night, co-written with Bruce Springsteen. Um, television never never had a hit. They only stuck around for two full albums, and then Tom Verlaine went solo. Richard Hell and the Voidoids, Definitely never had a hit. They were completely self-destructive. I think they toured England once and then just felt collapsed in a, in a mountain of needles. And, uh, you know, the Dead Boys definitely got basically blackballed from radio after the Sex Pistols became so infamous. And that kind of was it for the new the punk thing. And then rebranded it New Wave. Blondie hit big with Heart of Glass, the disco song. And Talking Heads slowly but surely started to get hit singles. And um, and as Matos points out, they were the only one of those original CBGB's groups to make it to 1984 intact. Even though the Ramones were still out there touring, they were already on their third drummer. So Tommy and Marky had already had their... Tommy had had his whole run. Marky had had his first run. And I think it was Richie Ramone on drums for Too Tough to Die in 1984. Um, so, um, what was your take on the whole new wave punk thing? Like we talked about that a little, but how off-putting was it all to you? And, and what were you expo even exposed to in this period? You know, it's, funny, it's go, go ahead, finish what oh. you were going to say. You, what did you I think at first? I didn't get exposed to the Ramones until rock and roll high school was on HBO. And then it swept wow. through fifth grade at my elementary school and we all loved it. And we didn't really have any context for it. We didn't know about the Sex Pistols yet. I didn't know about the Clash yet. I certainly didn't know about Patti Smith yet. Um, but I had heard of Talking Heads and Blondie and The Police and The Knack, I think was about the extent of my new wave awareness in the late 70s. Well, I became, you know, I was aware just because I read Cream and Rolling Stone still. And that was my kind of, I'd say it was really coming along my senior year in high school. And then the Sex Pistols opened their American tour in Atlanta at a at a music hall that usually had the nitty gritty dirt band, but that was part of Mr. McLaren's evil plan. Um, and it was, uh, I have a couple friends who were there and supposedly Pete Buck was there. 
Um, I'm not sure I believe it, but, and of course <laughs> he had some dramatic, but um, it's, it's interesting listening to you talk about Seymour Stein and these bands, because somehow I got my hands on my senior year in high school, a, a, a copy of the 45 for Sheena as a punk rocker by the, by the Ramones. And I even snuck it into school and played it. And this guy who one day became a huge punk fan got really offended that I was playing it on the on the record player at the student newspaper in high school. But um, but it was really word of mouth. It was a lot of word of mouth, and that goes for the Talking Heads too. Yeah, I mean, they definitely built up over time. I know my big brother had multiple Talking Heads albums, and I think I saw him on Saturday Night Live. And now I ended up buying more songs about buildings and food and Talking Heads 77, and then my brother talked him into trading them for the first three Kiss albums. So <laughs> <laughs> that tells you about the hit mistakes and also my relative lack of hitness. Um <laughs> For sure. But yeah, they, 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 I mean, the Talking Heads are one of those bands that I think when they debuted on Saturday Night Live, they freaked me out and I didn't know what to make of. I'm very much like Captain Beefheart. And Steph tells me it's time to play some music. So let's hear the Talking Heads Psycho Killer. This is live from the Stop Making Sense movie and soundtrack album. Talking Head Psycho Killer, the live version from 1983, the version that was in the Stop Making Sense movie. And then Matos does something pretty clever, which he ties in the uh, fact that the U.S. economy was recovering. It had basically been in the Paul Volcker, Volcker recession since 78 or 79, when after the uh, Iranian revolution and subsequent oil embargo of the United States and the hostage crisis and everything else, the uh, interest rates were raised to like 19 or 20 percent for quite a while, which killed the economy, as you can imagine. And that recession lasted throughout the first couple years of Reagan's term. And it wasn't really until the last year of Reagan's first term that the economy really clearly turned around. And that's when this whole mythology of Wall Street really got going. And, and Matos points out to Tom Wolfe's Bonfire of the Vanities, which was a novel, unlike his books about the 60s, which were nonfiction novels, like in the Hunter S. Thompson or Truman Capote style. I think Wolfe actually probably did it before Thompson. But anyway, those in those instances, he hung out with Ken Casey and the Merry Pranksters and the whole acid test experiments in San Francisco and the Bay Area in 65, 66, 67, and wrote that up in a couple of different books. Uh, the electric Kool-Aid acid test being the most famous. And then, but then in the eighties, he writes this bonfire of the vanities as fiction that's serialized in Rolling Stone magazine. And that's where I first heard about yuppies and junk bonds and all that kind of stuff. Do you remember that book being serialized in the in Rolling Stone? Oh, absolutely. Stone? Yes, absolutely. I bought it. I didn't have a, I stopped at my subscription my junior year in high school, but I bought it enough to pick up on things like that and the whole idea the whole yuppie 
and the whole uh, young and especially young people. And see, I was 23 at that point, and I was thinking about a corporate career outside the newspaper business, which I never thought I would even think of. And so there was so much publicity about that. And I mean, to the point that I think it was Newsweek or maybe Time had a picture of two yuppies on it, a couple, a, you know, it couple in New York City uh, with their their suits on uh, and their running shoes going to work. And um, it it certainly got a certain kind of hype. I will admit this, though, I never associated um, talking heads with it and, and our man, Mr. Byrne. Yeah, although if you go back and look at his song lyrics, he was writing songs about stockbrokers like by 78 or 79. And it was part of his attempt to document ordinary life. And I think he was deliberately going for the least glamorous topics he could. And so it's pretty ironic that just a few years later, as the talking heads become superstars, are not ever quite superstars, but stars. I mean, you know, gold and platinum albums and arena tours and their albums after Stop Making Sense just lived on MTV um, and, you know, were, were kind of big events, the, the couple that they had left in them. But, um, yeah, so, you know, that's that's the, the tie-in for Matos uh, to connect this with David Byrne. And, and you know, the whole... I went back and rewatched Stop Making Sense yeah, last night. That was really, really fun, except for the part where my daughter wouldn't give it a chance. But, you know, what are you going to do? Kids? But, uh, but you know, it's a big movie for my wife and and, and uh, definitely a big movie for me. And it was really, I mean, it, it holds up. It's a really powerful, well-made film. Although the giant suit that's in all the posters and the photos, it seemed like Byrne only wore it for like one and a half songs. So, um you know, it's just interesting that that iconic visual was a, was a really small part of the of the show, but the overall show, the way it's staged and and laid out. I mean, it starts out with David Byrne with an acoustic guitar, pushing play on a jam box, which is playing a tape of a drum machine track, and you know he he sings and plays Psycho Killer, accompanied by that. For the second song, Tina Wymouth comes out on bass. Third song, Chris France comes out on drums. Fourth song, Jerry Harrison comes out on keyboards and guitars, and it kind of reconstructs the way the band was put together. And Matos goes back and tells us all about that, that they met the three main principals, Chris and Tina and David Byrne, met at RISD, uh, the Rhode Island School of Design, which is in Providence, close to Brown University. And, um, you know, David Byrne was the attention-seeking sort of class. Freak is probably too strong a term, but class character. And uh, Tina and Chris were both children of military parents. And and Tina Wymouth is kind of the drill sergeant of the talking heads. And she, <laughs> she talked about how she could yell everybody down except David, who was too gentle to want to yell at. And he only had two modes, either completely passive or completely confrontational. So you don't want to trigger <laughs> the dark side of David Byrne, as the band learned uh, to their regret you know, later on. If, probably the most disassociated band this side of Creedence Clearwater Revival. I mean, they've been at odds for decades now and haven't toured together or anything. And, you know, so the, those three came together, played for quite a while, moved down to, from, uh, moved down for Providence. Somehow Baltimore gets in the picture. I'm not quite sure. And then they end up in New York and CBGB's by 77 and bring in Jerry Harrison, who had been in Jonathan Richmond's Modern Lovers. 
whose album finally came out in 1977 on Berserkly Records. So, um, you know, for one, one of the kind of legendary unreleased bands in the early 70s finally got their work out in 77. And then, um, you know, they do their first three albums and then their fourth album, Remain in Light, Brian Eno comes in. He's hot off of the trilogy of albums he made with David Bowie and a couple albums that he worked on with Bowie at Iggy Pop. So, you know, and he also makes the No Wave compilation right around this time, which features like Teenage Jesus and the Jerks, which was Lydia Lunch's first band, and uh, ESG, which is this dance funk group out of the Bronx that got lumped in there, and uh, James White and the Blacks. Or maybe he was with the contortions at that point. Anyway, but 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 you know, it's very hip to the New York scene, and "Remain in Light" was the album that kind of made the Talking Heads. Uh, it definitely boosted their commercial chances with the the hit cover of Al Green's uh, "Take Me to the River," and um, but it built up the band tension, and because Eno gave himself and Byrne sole songwriting credits and and cut out the band, which you know, was, was, was a pretty typical producer move in those days. Were you aware of any of this kind of power play between Brian Eno and, and Tina Weymouth and the rest of the talking heads? I'll put it this way. I was in a band in 1988 that would, we were compared to the talking heads, not that we really were like them, but our singer sang like them. That's when I learned about power moves and people getting credit and, um, suddenly coming up with ideas that actually somebody else came up with and stuff like that. I mean, it's, it's kind of amazing. And it sounds like, um, you know, what did he, you know, think, what did he think was going to happen um, with the rest of the band or did he not care? I think he didn't think, care. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I think it was very clearly, he thought David Byrne was the genius and the rest of them were just session players that, you know, were disposable which is pretty common for producers to do. And even somebody like Brian Eno that I'm a big fan of, it's kind of disappointing uh, when that hits. But it's time for our next song, and we're going to cue a subject change because this is Spinal Tap's Big Bottom, and we'll discuss the mockumentary of the decade. And that was Big Bottom, featuring everybody playing bass and Spinal Tap from the Spinal Tap. This is Spinal Tap movie of the same uh, year. Now, I was excited about Spinal Tap. Reading, I guess I was reading about it in Musician Magazine. Um, I might have been in Rolling Stone, but I didn't get to see it, I think, for a full maybe two years. No, a year and a half or so later. But friends of mine went to Amarillo to see it. And were completely nonplussed. They did not know what to make of it. They thought it was stupid. They thought the band was mediocre. They didn't realize it was a, a mockumentary or a comedy. They thought it was a real documentary about a real band and didn't like it. What kind of reactions did you see to Spinal Tap? Did people get it or were they completely baffled? Well, it's 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 fascinating, very similar to, to what you're talking about, where um and I 
probably sound like a broken record, but I lived in a town and also had this this nighttime job as a sports writer that limited my entertainment possibilities. So I, but I still had kind of my posse in Atlanta and I, who I would hang out with. And, um, the same guy that started singing, um, big bottom, the, uh, uh, better on Monday was my lucky Monday. He's singing those lyrics to me or he's saying them to me and laughing. He was a, he was like learning to be a Navy pilot. And he's actually the person I saw stop making sense with two years later or a year and a half later, but they were all goofing on it. And I was like, what are you guys talking about? And they, so the only thing I knew about Spinal Tap until I saw it in my parents, on my parents' cable, um, probably three months later in 85 again. Um, and again, I didn't recognize it at first as, um, as what it was, but, but it was totally word of mouth. And then I became a, 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 a complete adherent to it once I'd seen it once. Yeah, it, it, it quickly became a cult item in our circle, and we had a lot of fun at the expense of the stoners at our high school who didn't realize it was a joke. Um, but, of course, we had to watch our teeth <laughs> when we dotted yeah. them because yeah. they were going to be swinging at us. But, yeah, so Spinal Taps is classic mockumentary. It's essentially kind of a parody of Martin Scorsese's um, The Last Waltz featuring the band's last show, Thanksgiving 77, I believe, in San Francisco, but with a very different band. So Christopher Guest and Michael McKean, uh, famous then uh, for Laverne and Shirley, but more famous now for these mockumentaries, um, and Harry Shearer with a variety of drummers, including Ed Begley Jr., um, put together this band. They, they wrote out the history of the band in great detail so that they could then improvise each scene within the context of the story that they had made up. And nothing like this had been done, to my knowledge. I guess the Ruddles had been. The Ruddles was a, okay, the Ruddles was a mockumentary that was done a few years earlier that's a parody of the Beatles by Eric Idle and uh, Monty Python with Neil Ennis of the Bonzo Doodah Dog Band. Um, but no, no Americans had really attempted anything like this. Christopher Guest had not yet been on Saturday Night Live, neither had Harry Shearer. Michael McKean was best known as Lenny of Lenny and Squiggy from Laverne and Shirley and wasn't really seen as a hip comedian. I mean, he was a very successful sitcom actor, but, but he wasn't in that Saturday Night Live crowd. So people didn't quite know what to expect. And Rob Reiner had not yet directed. This was his first direct his directorial debut so he hadn't directed princess bride um or stand by me or any of the movies that made him you know kind of one of the major commercial and critical success directors of the later 80s so people were just completely baffled by this so the movie tells the story of a band that it's still in this era in the early 80s when you would have like bands like quiet riot like Rudy Sarzo starts out as a surf rocker in the early 60s and doesn't, you know, works throughout the 60s and 70s in bands and doesn't become famous until he actually with Ozzy Osbourne and Randy Rhodes and then comes back to Quiet Riot and they go platinum. So you still have these stories like that. And Spinal Tap's the story of a band that's, you know, starts out as the originals, then they become the new originals. <laughs> and, and, you know, but they're in the beat band scene in Britain contemporary with the, the mop top era Beatles. And then they go through the, the flower power period and they evolve into a psychedelic band. Then they evolve into a heavy metal band of sorts. 
And that's where the movie focuses is this band, this fake band touring America, uh, not very successfully in the mid 80s. And yeah, it's a classic. It's uh, commentary on heavy metal. But I think one thing, another thing that kind of threw people was that the bands that they were kind of making fun of were more like Rainbow or Deep Purple, sort of the 70s people that were contemporary with these actors. And by the time this movie hits the screen, Van Halen and Motley Crue and ACDC are the standard bearers of hard rock. And they don't have those kind of backgrounds. They don't trace their personal roots back to the early 60s. So people are, I think, kind of puzzled by that. But yeah, it was just a classic uh, failure to communicate. And uh, I, I think Matos does a good job of... of of explaining that. And I, although he also brings in a key reference, which is the Trogs tapes. Now, were you hip to the Trogs tapes? Not until I read this. Okay. So the Trogs tapes he are fell. classic. So the, the, the Trogs, of course, famous for wild thing and love is all around and a number of hits in England, uh, a number more hits in England than they had in the States. Kind of, one of the few British bands that had they been American, we would consider them a garage rock band for, for whatever reason, they're just not seen in the same league as say the kinks or the pretty things or the Yardbirds or even the easy beats there in this sort of subcategory. Cause they're a little bit meatheady. <laughs> and if you hear the <laughs> Trogs tapes, it's like a 30, 45 minute tape of them after their wild thing, heyday trying to record a song and the guitar player can't recreate what he was playing the day before. And the singer can't can't fathom this and can't abide it. And they just have <laughs> the stupidest 30-minute <laughs> argument uh, about this song they're trying to record. And that kind of inspired Christopher Guest and company then uh, to just sit around and, and do stupid British uh, rock star jokes. Like they'd play stupid British rock stars. And I'm not calling the Trogs stupid, but they sound stupid in the Trogs tapes. It's definitely not them at their best. And so, you know, that's kind of the genesis, uh, another big part of the genesis of the movie. And of course, those same guys had a fake folk band. Um, I want to say the Folksman. Is that the name of it? That that they later. I think so. Yeah, featured. The one that was a. <laughs> on Saturday night, right? Yeah, they they played a, they debuted it on Saturday Night Live, or I don't know if they'd done it before, but they did do it on Saturday Night Live when sp they were guests of Spinal Tap. They did two features, one as Spinal Tap, but one as this folk band, which had to confuse people even more. But later they immortalized that in a mighty wind in the 2000s. So, uh, you know, that's one of the, the two underground movies that they focus on here. But let's take our sponsor break when we come back. We'll talk about Repo Man, the underground punk rock hit movie of night. No, not a hit, but the, the most important <laughs> punk movie of 1984. Hello, Pantheon podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. 
with Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. All right, so Repo Man. What was your? Did you have any awareness or exposure to Repo Man back in the day? It was yes, and it um, it actually I happened to bump into some, I will call them hipster friends, um, from the, the University of Georgia student newspaper who we were all quote unquote adults at that point, um, in a bar in Atlanta at in sep- early September of '84. And they were getting ready to go see Repo Man at one of the art houses in Atlanta. And it just, I knew nothing about, that's all I knew about it. And, um, but then I came across it again at my parents with the, with the cable TV on. And it became one of my favorite movies. Certainly it's, I'm, I'm kind of shocked. He mentions the two movies that I think had the biggest impact on me in that, in that year, except I didn't see them till 85 which was Spinal Tap and Repo Man. How about yeah. you? Yeah, definitely. Uh, my my first exposure to Repo Man was on a Saturday evening at home on the movie channel. And my buddy John Patterson was over. And, you know, on paid cable, you would rarely catch a movie exactly at the beginning. You know, you'd, you'd turn it on and, oh, it's that, you know, um, uh, Neil Simon movie in the middle again with Chevy Chase and Goldie Hawn, you know, and you'd either stick yeah. with it or change the <laughs> channel. But sometimes you would just catch a movie from the beginning. I'd never heard of Repo Man. I didn't have a clue. But me and my buddy are just hanging out, and there it is, you know, right from the beginning. We have no idea what it is. And we were just thrilled with it. It was perfect. It's the sci-fi slash gritty street movie it's about a kid who is a punk rocker but he gets recruited to be a repo man by this odd gang of characters led by harry dean stanton who's a you know classic 80s character actor 60s 70s you know this harry dean stanton's a guy who came up with jack nicholson back in the 60s doing roger corman movies and by the 80s had become kind of a beloved cult actor i think he was in uh, paris texas directed by vendors around the same time yep Yep. And it had Emilio Estevez, who wasn't famous yet, and Charlie Sheen wasn't famous yet, but they're both the sons of Martin Sheen, and both um, became big 80s star. Emilio was in um, The Breakfast Club after Repo Man, and just a perfect movie for 15-year-old snot-nosed punks. You know, it's – it had – the the punk scene it had hardcore punk characters it had songs by black flag suicidal tendencies fear uh iggy pop it had a cover version of the modern lovers pablo picasso i can't remember the name 
I think, breaking tendencies or something. Somebody I've never heard of otherwise did a, a cover version of, of Pablo Picasso, the classic Jonathan Richmond song, which I'd never heard before. And so, you know, it was directed by Alex Cox, who's going to go on to direct Sid and Nancy and, and other things. But at the time, nobody knew what to make of it. It barely got released in theaters. And um, I was surprised to find out it didn't make its money back until 1999 because it was big on pay cable and it was big on video. Yes, yep. And the soundtrack. Go ahead, Yeah, I saw it in 95. I saw it again in 90. It was almost like a... I mean, I embraced the sensibilities of this movie. I just thought, um, and it was pretty tragic because I was going from working in a newspaper to working for a corporate ad agency. And that that sensibility was not really easy to find in a good an ad agency. <laughs> I um, think not. But it, it made perfect sense. And I mean, just all the, the things that Harry Dean Stanton said about repo men, you know, most people fucking ordinary people to try to stay out of intense situations and then repo man's trying to get into intense situations yes <laughs> yes worse to live by <laughs> indeed and and you know the 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 homophobic slurs that get thrown at john wayne and uh, yes and, and the enthusiastic defense you know everybody likes to watch their buddy screw and <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's just classic it, it was one of the first movies to, to kind of capture the conspiracy ethos and it's before we got how toxic the conspiracy ethos was going to be um oh, and, yeah. and, and it wasn't clear to me at least at the time punk seemed revolutionary it didn't seem reactionary but now i see punk very much as this reactionary movement so it, it's you know i could see that the downsides of it now much more than i could then when all i could see was how cool this movie was and you know it uh like like matos points out that the soundtrack album sold 50,000 copies on its own before the movie was even released on VHS. It's one of the reasons the movie was released on VHS because the soundtrack album did so well. And this was at a time when, um, you know, black flag was on SST and had this nightmarish legal battle with MCA records so that their records had been off the shelves anywhere. And they couldn't even play live from 80 late 80, one or maybe early 82 all the way through 83 and so in 84 they have a big comeback because they won their their lawsuit and um you know but they're still just on sst records their independent label that no more deals with mca no you know you couldn't get black flag records in blockbuster um ditto you know with fear and suicidal tendencies suicidal tendencies i want to say was on frontier records i could be wrong about that and and that their single institutionalized, which was on the soundtrack, also got an MTV. And so they became the biggest hardcore commercial hardcore band of that period. And um, yeah, it was just absolutely essential and was a big part of hardcore punk and, and pre-hardcore punk penetrating the American national consciousness. And it's also, you know, Matos mentions the Ramones earlier in their album, Too Tough to Die, was kind of the point at which they gave up on, you know, they had done albums with Phil Spector and Graham Gould of uh, of of Ten CC, the guy who wrote like the Yardbirds hits back in the '60s, Graham Goldman, sorry, and um, 
they had tried to to make albums that they thought would be more commercial and produce a hit single. By 84, they had given up, and Too Tough to Die is kind of their attempt to, and successful, to reclaim their mantle as, you know, America's top punk band, and, and it really cultivated a hardcore audience as well. So they're rededicated themselves to touring American clubs and, and they became a big player on the hardcore punk underground circuit. So, you know, it was a, a big, a big year uh, for punk and hardcore. And we'll talk, Matos will talk more about like Black Flag and Husker Du and the Meat Puppets and all the bands that are on SST records. And of course the replacements and Husker Du that were up in Minnesota, um, his neck of the woods uh, later on. So, you know, this is just one piece of the punk puzzle in that year. And then um, let's go ahead and cue uh, our next song. And this, this is Iggy Pop doing the title song for the Repo Man soundtrack. Iggy Pop, Repo Man. And that was Repo Man by Iggy Pop, the title song from the movie of the same name and soundtrack of the same name. And then he segues into a discussion of the big commercial music movies of this period and, and Flashdance, obviously, from 1983, but still a big factor uh, in, in the 84 music scene, particularly because Footloose was kind of a deliberate attempt to recreate the success of Flashdance. And and Matos is pretty hard on Flashdance. And I have to admit, I have not seen it since the late 80s. Um, it, it wasn't a great film, I think it's fair to say. But it did gross like $100 million. The soundtrack sold 5 million copies. It was very deliberately designed to emulate Saturday Night Fever, the massive success of 1977, but sort of de-emphasized the story and the acting even more. It's like a series of music videos uh, featuring Jennifer Bell's dancing and being beautiful. And and like uh, some critic that Matos quotes says, you know, if, if movies keep going in this direction, we're going to have movies with no characters and hardly any dialogue. <laughs> and yeah, that's pretty much, uh, you know, where it was, but had a ton of hit songs on it. Maniac jumps to mind. A flash dance, um, you know, just a, a massive, massive thing. What was your uh, exposure to flash dance and your flash dance experience? Did you get some leggings? Um, you know, I really should have. I, you know, this is just one more example where I see that was, uh, if I just played a little cooler, things would have gone so much better. Um, yeah. but, because I was giving my girlfriend at the time a hard time for owning this cassette, and we were driving down the highway um, in Georgia and. I guess one time was too many because she popped it out of the, the deck and threw it out the window. <laughs> Lesson learned. Lesson That's learned. right. Um, and that, but you know, we didn't, I don't know if she, if she might've gone and seen it without me, but I didn't see it until, until we saw it in a, that same summer in 84 in a, in a drive-in, which was a terrible place to see it. Cause it's a pretty dark movie and, you know, the lighting is pretty dark in a lot of it and yeah. the 
and it's it is not not exactly the di- everything you just said about is true and it was hard to hear all that um so it was really it landed with such a thud i think it was just a a, a metaphor for for other things going on <laughs> <laughs> yeah now i can remember that phenomenon of seeing movies at the drive-in in the 80s it was weird like in the 70s movies were made for drive-ins the speakers worked that was popular there would be you know a lot full of cars watching the movie it would be kind of family wholesome like i can remember going in my little footy pajamas and seeing movies i had no business seeing as a seven or eight year old like burnt offerings and you know other karen black (laughs) (laughs) type movies like but by the 80s when you go to a drive-in and i also saw flash dance at the drive-in and like you said you know the screen was too dark to see the the little speakers you would put in your car by that point barely worked you'd have to drive from space to space to find one that worked there would be like five cars in the lot and i clearly remember seeing the kid that was like my neighborhood hero like the the kid who always played you know he's like four or five years older than the kids in the neighborhood he would always play quarterback when we play football and you know if somebody fell down and cut themselves he'd say oh you need to run home and get stitches or ah this you'll be fine you know that kind of stuff like kind of our local big brother and i swear he was in there in the bathroom dealing coke (laughs) 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 and just you know looking at me like what are you doing here you know i don't want you to see me like this and so I, I too had a nightmarish uh, flash dance uh, drive-in experience. You could not see what was happening or hear it, but you know it had the classic Irene Cara, uh, "Oh What a Feeling" or whatever, "Flash Dance," yeah. "What a Feeling" song. Um, I think Phil Ramone was the mastermind uh, producer behind the the album, and and you know it just it's it just reeled off hit after hit, and the videos were basically pre-made like there were yeah i think four or five songs that had um videos that were just irene care or uh, jennifer bell's dancing around you know and 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 it was um the kind of thing that cynics and wags definitely tutted at but you know the market spoke for itself and then this leads directly into footloose which is like the inverse of that it's like one is a movie about an urban dancer slash welder who you know is this uh, light-skinned african-american woman who's breaking all kinds of color barriers to break into her field as a welder or dancer or whatever and footloose is like the white country boy version of that where kevin bacon is a kid moving to a small town it's like 27 year old kevin bacon supposed to be playing a 15 year old and um in a town where evil john lithgow has forbidden dancing he's a preacher and somehow he's got the, the whole town is not allowed to dance and it's just an excuse to have a whole bunch of music videos essentially and um my god was it successful and you could not get away with it you had the kenny Loggins soundtrack uh, title song footloose uh and you also had um denise williams let's hear it for the boy shalimar's dancing in the sheets um you know Big, 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 uh, big, big, big album. What was your Footloose experience? Well, I I pretty much fell fell for it completely. By which I mean, the the original trailer um, just kind of isolated the riff, that guitar riff, 
to the song and yeah. and just it's a it's a fantastic trailer i mean i did it it was almost like i didn't care what the movie was about because it was so visual and and using that guitar riff i i had to see it and then you know it's kind of it's ridiculous but it also had some really like christopher penn is in it he had been in all the right moves with tom cruise but you know sean penn's yeah. brother um laurie singer's in it um Sarah, Sarah Jessica Parker, who was in her square, square pegs mode, and Kevin Bacon actually was getting all this good publicity, and yeah. in spite of it, he it's, was in a Hallmark movie, a Hallmark Hall of Fame movie at the same time, and and I kept thinking, is that the guy who was in Animal House screaming, "All is well, all is well," and it is, it is yeah. the same guy, and um, but I mean that that movie really put him on maybe more than one map. I mean, and, and, and get, he, it was like, he got a lot of cred. Yeah. He became Kevin Bacon after that. Kevin yeah. Bacon became exactly. a star and, and yep. he, that whole dancing around in the white t-shirt thing. And, and, and Matos will talk about this phenomenon later, but it kind of tied him and the movie to the sort of Bruce Springsteen, Tom Petty, uh, uh, what was the guy with the Beaver Brown band? I can't even remember his name. Yeah. Yes, I know you're talking about. I'll yeah. look it up. Yeah. I, yeah, exactly. That's so yeah. true. There was this whole, and there was a few bands like the Bodines and the Del Fuegos. There was this whole sort of Heartland Rocker movement that was trying to coalesce yeah. in the wake of Bruce, John Cafferty and the Beaver Brown band. John Cafferty, oh, yep. Thank Good you, job. Um, and, uh, yeah, and so there's this whole, you know, John Cougar Mellencamp, of course, you have to talk about yep. in this, in this yep. period, too. And somehow, just by virtue of wearing a white T-shirt and dancing around, Kevin uh, – uh, uh, um, now I'm blanking. What's this? Kevin Bacon um, uh, kind of got some of that cred as well. But, you know, um, I got to play my favorite song from that soundtrack, though. This is one that immediately got my attention – and my, I can remember my brother and I driving to Amarillo and buying records one Saturday morning, and they were playing the song in the in the record stores, the sound warehouse, and we both made fun of each other for singing it coming out of 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 the of the record store. Then we heard it on the radio twice on the way home, and so this is Denise Williams. Let's hear it for the boy, produced by George Duke. And that was Denise Williams. Let's hear it for the boy. And this is one of these songs that at the time I never took seriously. I never even considered buying a copy of it, but I listened to it every time it came on the radio. I knew all the words I would sing. I would sing it and dance around the house, but it was, it was a totally a guilty pleasure. It's not something I admitted to anybody that I actually liked, but now looking back on it, it's like, damn, that is a perfect pop song. And to me, far and away, the best song on that soundtrack album. I listened to that whole album uh, proper for this show. And, and 
you know, the Kenny Loggins song, I think, is fun for about 35 seconds yeah. <laughs> or, you know, a minute and a half. But it, it really doesn't break any new ground that he, from anything he did with the Caddyshack theme song, you know? Yes. Like, yep. Um, you know, he's he's kind of running out his string. I think I think he was kind of at that same point in his career as Toto, where he had this yeah, good point run in the seventies <laughs> and early eighties, and it's just he's still having hits, but he's basically done. Um, did you like? And did you know that that George Duke produced that and the Shalimar song? Like, I had no idea that the same guy produced those two songs because those are totally different. And then Shalimar. And Matos gets into this. I, I didn't know much of this at, at the time, but Shalimar, you know, is this uh, black R&B band that I view as kind of contemporaneous with like the Gap Band and the SOS Band and Cameo, but they were kind of the more new wave of those groups. Um, Cameo definitely played the new wave card a little bit. You know, Rick James, obviously his punk funk thing was was kind of the king of that and Prince too. But Shalimar, I mean, uh, 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 Jeffrey Daniels had a new wave haircut. Jody Watley was in the band. It was two solid gold dancers, Jody Watley and Jeffrey Daniels. And then Howard Hewitt, who was from Akron, which is like a lot of 70s funk comes from Ohio, like the Ohio players, obviously. And um, and I think they were Dayton. But um, Akron had a scene as well as, you know, I think Devo's from Akron, but, but, you know, produced Shalimar. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. And then, um, yeah. And so it's interesting, but then they end up adding this guy, Mickey free, who's a rock guitarist and then Watley and and Daniels quit. And then their next album is like pretty much a straight rock album. And I can remember that coming out um, at the time. And, I remember really trying to like that and push that on my friends because I was like, look, these guys are really rocking hard. And, 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 you know, and then other people, my other friends were like, I like their last album better. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> I liked when they were an R&B group. <laughs> Why are you bringing me this bad rock? But, uh, um, you know, it was interesting. And Matos does like a whole, a whole sort of breakdown on the, the Shalimar career, which I thought was an interesting aside. Did you, did you follow Shalimar at all back in the day? I didn't, you know, I didn't, I think I, I got him because I was getting what, what I was going to say about this Denise Williams. I, I, I mean, I don't want to reveal too much about myself, but I thought it was Madonna. I was getting a, I was getting a full dose of Madonna by then. And she yeah. reminded me of Madonna, and you know they did market um, Madonna as they. I've and maybe it was this book. I've read it recently, and maybe it's this book where they didn't want people to know Madonna was white because they were trying to break her on R and B. So, yeah. um, yep. but but I heard this song go. I heard this song a lot before I even saw. I didn't know that it was in Footloose, so I was familiar, and I I enjoyed it. But Shalimar, I kind of. I must have missed them, or I was hearing them all the time and just didn't realize it because it was yeah. I was listening to classic hits. That was all I had to listen to. Yeah, yeah. Our our selection of R and B uh, stations was desperately lacking in the Texas Panhandle too, for sure. I didn't. There was a ton of stuff uh, that I only heard uh, honestly from hanging out with black friends uh, and listening to the cassettes they had in their car. Like I didn't, um, oh. you know, I would never have heard. I, I take that back. I heard the Gap Band a little bit on the radio, but mostly later, I want to say. I don't think I was hearing it at the time, and I definitely was not hearing Shalimar at the time. And then um, the last uh, topic that, that 
Matos brings up in this chapter, uh, the, the last kind of movie song, is um, Against All Odds, Take a Look at Me Now, the Phil Collins song, which was part of the Against All Odds soundtrack, which was a video I saw a million times. And the video had all these scenes from this movie that nobody ever saw. I don't even remember that movie showing up in the theater. Um, it was directed by the same person who did Officer and a Gentleman, which had all these sexy scenes with Richard Gere and Deborah Winger. And they were trying to recreate that. I, uh, I, I can't remember who the actors even were, um, but that, you know, it had this kind of sweaty, romantic, mysterious plot driven video that you were supposed to know the movie to, but nobody did, you know, <laughs> but it was this yeah. massive Phil Collins hit. And, you know, I had this, it had been bolted onto the soundtrack. It wasn't written for the movie or anything. And he sings uh, against the odds through most of the song. I think he has one reference to against all odds there at the end. But yeah, and we're going to be hearing a lot more about Phil Collins uh, later in the book. I wouldn't be surprised, in fact, if the next chapter or two doesn't does um, talk about him the way Matos likes to weave his narratives together. But again, he swerved on us last time. I thought for sure we were going to be diving into the San Francisco club scene this this time, and 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 it was the, the Talking Heads movie. But any commentary on Phil Collins or Against All Odds? You know, I was getting uh, the woman that I was dating at the time loved Phil Collins, and I was getting a huge dose of him. Um, it's strange. I saw this movie, and um, Jeff Bridges and James Wood are the two male protagonists. So I am gapping on the 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 uh, actress's it's name. Becca something. Um, Let me. I can she, keep talking. She was in. Uh, she was in a. She was in a. I think. Oh God. She was. She was in a Sharky's Machine with Burt Reynolds, and she was in some other things. And I mean, it actually is a pretty good caper type uh, L.A. style movie, and um, and it's pretty. And they certainly make the Rachel most Ward. of Rachel, Rachel Ward. Ward. Yes. They make the most of the, of the, of Jeff Bridges and Rachel Ward making out all over, you know, the ruins of some, I don't know, Mexican a, or Aztec, you know, and then, I mean, love scene all yeah. um, from here to eternity. <laughs> oh, um, what's his name? The coconuts are in it. And I cannot remember his name. Um, and you know, I know you know who I'm talking about, but I'll I'll think of it. Um, yeah, but um, not now. not Commander Cody and the Coke. That was that. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Kid Creole and the Coconuts. Yes, they're in it. They're oh wow! It. James Woods. James Woods is in it, and there's a character actor who's in it, and there's some really good. I mean, there's kind of a good. It's it's got that Chinatown flavor to it. It's kind oh. of got some evil stuff in it too. So, um, and I actually, strangely thinking about it, I, of all those songs, I like this song of all Phil Collins. There's none of that gated drumming, or maybe it's just minimal, but I, I do kind of like this song. Um, so there you have it. Yeah. It's very representative of what Phil Collins was about, which I was baffled by at the time. I, I, I did not understand or appreciate Genesis or Phil Collins in this era. And then like when he added Phil, when he did a duet with Philip Bailey of earth, wind and fire, I was completely baffled. (laughs) And uh, yeah, yeah, the whole Phil Collins thing is something that I didn't like at the time. And I didn't make peace with until just a couple years ago. So 
um, you know, this whole appreciation of the 80s aesthetic was definitely alien to me at the time. I liked guitars. I liked real drums. I, I liked punk rock. I didn't care for the gated uh, snare drum thing or the, the use of drum machines, the big space in the production. None of it. But now I can appreciate this. I mean, clearly the music stood the test of time and, and people just love Phil Collins. I mean, who am I to complain? <laughs> but, you know, what are you going to do? I, I think um, I want to go back before we, we wrap the episode there, because one more thing I want to say about Talking Heads that uh, that Matos uh, brings out is that they had benefited from that brief window that he talked about, I think, in the second chapter of the book. Um, when AOR stations were so desperate, they were playing new wave in 78, 79, 80. So that's when the nap with my Sharona blows up. And that's when Blondie blows up with, you know, call me and heart of glass and all that stuff. And and the talking heads get some, they're never that big. They don't have a number one, but they have some hit singles. They're getting radio play. And then that changes, they get cut off from the radio and they deliberately target r&b radio which was a natural fit for them because they'd always they'd gone to discos just for fun from the get at at when they were at rizzed in in providence and they kept that connection to to dance music and so for the stop making sense tour i mean they had bernie worrell of funkadelic on keyboards they had uh, i think alex weir is his name uh the guitar player from the brothers johnson who's totally badass uh, they yep. had two great um uh, you know i can't steve scales or i, I want to say as a percussionist and then two great uh, black backup singers and it was a very integrated band i can remember a girl i went to high school with coming into school after seeing that movie and getting into an argument with one of my friends about whether the Talking Heads were a white band or a black band. And she was like, I can count. I know how many <laughs> N-words are on that stage. And there's more of us than there are of you oh, in that God. band. Oh, God. She, <laughs> she was black, so she could do it. <laughs> oh, good. Good. Yeah. <laughs> good. You know, she was like, y'all, I like this. This is, this is black music. <laughs> y'all trying to steal our band and i'm like what are you talking about none of the members are black i hadn't seen the movie yet and i didn't realize you know how how much the touring band was black she was totally right there were more black people on that stage than white people and so that was a deliberate part of their strategy and then there's always a point when a band if they're going to evolve into a, a true mass popularity they have to move from the club setting to the theater setting then to the arena setting and this is the Talking Heads maturing into an arena rock band, but doing it in a totally novel way. The staging has nothing to do with, say, Pink Floyd or Rush or ZZ Top or any of the kind of 70s arena rock bands. It's it's an art school version of that. And it's been so influential on people since then in the way rock bands stage that you don't even see it as some kind of novelty or new thing. But in the 80s, it was very much a new thing. And it was a very interesting strategy on David Byrne and the band's part in a way to make this most idiosyncratic and deliberately normal, uh, faux normal, but their their idea, I mean, they're wearing izods on stage. Like not many bands were doing that when they started doing that. And and this was, they figured out how to turn the Talking Heads into an arena rock band. And it worked. It was, it was a classic for the ages. So, 
Ed, any final thoughts on the the movie, the music movies of 1984? Well, you know, I think it, it just listening to you talk reminds me. Um, and I thought this when I was reading this this chapter again. If John Lennon had been alive, I think that he would have just just been so envious of Talking Heads and David Byrne, because uh, David Byrne ended up being a fine art. I mean, I've yeah. I've been to fine art shows of his, you know, and and that the, they were so smart, and they they actually were subversive in a way that they had to be more subversive than the Beatles were, because the Beatles were the Beatles, but. Um, but I just didn't, this makes me admire them so much. I mean, I played in a band that was, was influenced by them, but, but the, I don't even think of them as a CBGB band and look what, look at, at everything they did. And, and it, it just wasn't in your face, but it was way smarter. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and also their lifestyle choices made it much easier for them to thrive and survive in a way that, that Richard Hell and the Voidoids or the Dead Boys, for example, just, <laughs> yeah. we're not going to. <laughs> you ain't kidding, planet. brother. Yeah. yeah. And that's, a, that's one last thing I want to bring up before we wrap, is that one of the missing figures in the scene in 1984 is Patti Smith. Like, she had been truly the leader of that scene. She was the first one playing out. She wasn't the first to play CBGBs. I think that was television, but she was the first one playing... Um, uh, you know the, the I can't the I can't remember the performance space where the New York Dolls played. I think she played there. She played Max's Kansas City, but she and Lenny Kay were playing the clubs well before the Ramones or television were out there. She had the first major label album out of the scene. Yeah, she had the first Academy sing- of Music. Was it yeah, Academy, Academy of Music? music. Yeah, yeah, keep and, going. And Sorry, she, you know had the first hit single. Was the first one on Saturday yeah. Live. And yeah. Then she marries Fred Sonic Smith of MC5 and retires and becomes a housewife. Like, and I think had she stayed active, she would have been a big factor in the 1984 mix. Um, and it's it's one of those what ifs, but but I really feel yeah. like she's somebody who's who could have, would have, should have been a big presence in 1984. And so it'd, it'd be very interesting to see what she would have done had she stayed a mainstream rock figure. And that's yeah. that's it for our episode. Uh, for Nate Wilcox right. and Ed Legg, we're discussing Michelangelo Matos's Can't Slow Down, how 1984 became Pop's blockbuster year. And next week, we'll be back with more. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at letitrollpodcast.com. Thursday, Nate continues the Three Kings of American Pop series with the first part of his discussion of Peter Goralnik's Elvis Presley biography and the HBO documentary The Searcher with Gurdip Ladar and Justin Galsman of the TCB cast. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcast.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.